The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me there is Dr. Sylvain Lebois. I'm actually quite excited for this conversation. And like I said, hopefully we'll get some good audience attention here. But doctor, if you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? And get involved into the agri side of the world. And what are you doing currently? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thank you uh, very much for the invitation. So uh, my name is Sylvain Chalabois. My, my home university is Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. That's on the East Coast. It's about eight hours north of New York City. And the focus uh, of my research is basically food distribution and policy. And uh, I head up a lab here in Halifax, and we have about 20 employees. And, and my staff basically works on a variety of projects. And depending of who funds these projects, we look at topical issues, really. In the last couple of years, it's been mainly inflation, food inflation, obviously, and uh, relationship within the supply chain from farm gate to plate. Most consumers don't or can't appreciate, I guess, how complicated food supply chain economics are. And so our job is to explain to the public exactly how things are challenging across, well, from both ends of the food continuum, but also we also try to, to understand phenomena like why are food prices going up, how trades work. We look at labor issues, interest rates. We look at everything because as you probably can appreciate a lot of factors do impact food prices over time. Okay, so there's a lot of different directions to go with on that, but let's maybe set the clear the air for the audience. When food prices were going up, there was this narrative out there that there wasn't going to be enough wheat because of what was going on with Russia in Ukraine. Is it, it when food prices rise? Is it really an issue of there not being enough food, or is it more a function of? Yeah, exactly what you said, which is more on the distribution side of things that are disrupting the flow of ag. Well, it's more about perceived access, really. Because yeah. <laughs> when you look at what has happened the last 12 to 15 months, access wasn't an issue. Delayed access was, which is why we saw record prices. A bushel of wheat was at $13 US at one point back in June of 2022. And so... Again, it was a perceived lack of access. And of course, we all know that uh, Ukraine was able to agree with Russia on how to get grains out of ports and into the Black Sea. So that really helped a lot. 
and it eased tension. And that's why since June or July of last year, we've progressively seen commodity prices drop across the board. And now we're hearing reports from from grain handlers to processors, even with coming from uh, transportation companies, food prices or ingredient prices have started to drop for the last couple of months. And that's going to help plants and, of course, grocers in North America. North America is is in a bit of a food security bubble compared to Europe and other places around the world. When you compare, say, the food inflation rate in the United States and Canada, our food inflation rate rose over 10 or 11 percent only for a few months, whereas in Europe, many countries have actually seen their food inflation rate exceed 20 percent. Some of them actually still have a, an inflation rate of 20%. So things are not as volatile in North America due to the fact that we do produce a lot of our commodities and we process a lot of it as well. And both economies, both Canada and US are highly integrated as well. And that's why often when you see a swing in the market, it's not as violent in North America compared to other places. What are some of the other trends that you're seeing? And I think for most people, the most important trend is there going to be a downtrend in restaurant prices. Right? Yes. No, and I see it here and I'm in New York myself. It's utterly absurd, the kind of prices that are happening here. But just talk about broadly in terms of some of the things that you're noticing as far as uh, if there's going to be an easing of some of these prices or are we now at a firmly higher level? Yeah, menu prices have gone up, but uh, not as much as retail prices, which is really interesting. And I think both America and Canada are different markets in that regards. In Canada, we are, I think, food menu prices or food service prices were higher than retail for a while. It never happened in Canada. We saw a lot of restaurants close in Canada due to the pandemic. And so uh, we saw the marketplace become more competitive just because restaurant owners wanted to get Canadians, get consumers back out again. It's been a struggle. And I know it's been a struggle in many markets in the U.S. as well. But we're not expecting menu prices to rise as much as retail prices. In fact, I was just looking at the Canadian numbers today. When it comes to seeing Canadians spend the same amount of money in food service versus retail, we're basically back to where we were before COVID in Q1 of 2023. So 39% of a Canadian food budget goes to food service. That was the case before COVID, and now we're back to 39%. I believe in America, it's well over 50. It's been over 50 for a while, and I believe it is still the case. I wonder if you think that the reset of some of these mortgages in Canada, if that's going to break some of the fervor around just going out to eat. I mean, at some point, presumably, consumers have to make choices, and if you're going to be forced to pay a higher interest on your mortgage, that might make you not want to necessarily go out to Enjoy the finest dinner. That's a good point. Uh, <laughs> this week, we're highly anticipating the Bank of Canada's decision on Wednesday of this week, and I believe the Fed is meeting next week. So in Canada, there, there is uh, some speculation that perhaps rates will go up again. And that's really, I think, I, mean, I think you raise a good, very good point. My guess is that if rates go up again, it may actually push consumers away from food service, generally speaking, 
If you have a mortgage of $300,000, I mortgage over 25 years um, and you and you have a variable rate, you're likely spending $6,000, $5,000 more a year just to, to pay for shelter. And that's a lot of money. For food, you're looking at a bill that has increased by maybe $1,200 for the entire year for a family of four. So it's not it is significant, but it's not as significant as shelter. So the raising rates again on Wednesday is quite critical. But unlike the United States, the Bank of Canada is really playing a difficult game here because Canadians are more in debt than Americans. So if our central bank gets it wrong, it could actually be quite devastating for our economy. So because most Canadians owe more debt than Americans. You kind of have to be careful uh, when raising rates. It's not just about economic activity. It's really more about how Canadians are going to be coping with their own debts. What are some of the things that um, that you're seeing that are kind of mega trends that will help bring down food prices? I mean, there's always that argument that necessity is the mother of invention. I'm going to assume there were some interesting dynamics post-COVID as far as some new innovative processes or other longer term things that could bring prices down. But you know, talk to the audience some of the things that you are noticing that are interesting as far as industry trends. Well, first of all, I would say since February, March, we're starting to see industrial prices drop. Ingredient prices up the food chain are dropping. So now I'm not suggesting that retail prices will drop. Actually, I don't think that food retail prices will drop that, but they but we are expecting the food inflation to drop. The one thing that we're noticing much more so now than a few years ago is that companies are starting to not necessarily step away from the JIT model, the just-in-time model, but they're looking more at capitalizing on the just-in-case buffer, if you will. So, because, I mean, the JIT model has worked very well in the food industry for quite some time. It really reduces costs. You don't have to maintain a whole lot of inventory. You run a very tight supply chain. Vendors are on the hook to deliver the ingredients and the products you need to sell. It's been working well until you actually hit, you experience a black swan event, which is exactly what happened a couple of years ago. And right now, what I'm seeing are more companies looking at continuing to follow the JIT approach, but also they're building more inventory. So there's there's actually more inventory now in the system than just three years ago, which is why if something happens to commodity prices, the lag time to see, to absorb any shocks or to force consumers to absorb any shocks will actually be longer now as a result. That's what we're expecting over the next few years. That's actually a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Shock is a negative shock. Oh, yeah. No, it's... I think, I mean, the industry is becoming more strategic about about some of the things that are going on. And of course, there's lots of talk about AI right now with the arrival of chatbots like ChatGPT. And it got people to think a little bit more strategically about the use of AI in the food industry. I mean, companies are starting to figure out, well, it wouldn't be bad if we actually can anticipate ahead of time what's going to happen with demand. What if, if we can predict how many people will will follow a vegetarian diet in, in years to come? It'd be nice also as a food company to know whether or not someone will drop 
our brand next week or next month or next year. And with AI, you can predict. And if you can predict, uh, you become a better manager when it comes to supplies. So there's, there's a lot of that going on, which is the one thing that, that's been weird in North America is that farmers have actually adopted AI for a very long time, but, but the rest of the industry has been somewhat reluctant to embrace new technologies like AI, machine learning, and predictive analytics just because they didn't want to break something that wasn't broken. But now, because of labor issues, because of what's going on in the market, they're forced to look at new solutions. But I think you said it correctly, right? It's like, it's not that it's new, it's just getting more attention and that kind of creates a bit of a FOMO. Well, we got to look at the AI for, you know, managing inventory. And it makes sense it's on the former side, right? Because if it tells me about, you know, regressions analysis at its kind of very basic level, you know, it's easy to do that stuff to some extent with weather patterns, right? As it relates to growing. But what are some of the other maybe non-AI types of innovations that have been going on you think are worth paying attention to? Well, I mean, obviously, labor is is a huge issue. So we're seeing more automation, the use of robotics as well. That's a big one that we're seeing right now in, in the market. There's, there's also, and it's the same in America. I mean, when it comes to demand, food demand, it's it, markets are more fragmented. People are looking for different things, especially younger generations. Millennials are really becoming influential while boomers are checking out economically little by little. And so uh, people, companies uh, will have to start paying attention to the younger generations. And the younger generations have a very different relationship with, with food. They look for calories, obviously, but they also look for values like the environment, animal welfare, health, and things like that. So Companies are really challenged by the younger generations and they're expected to show a clear sustainable strategy. For example, they need to show exactly what they're doing beyond just selling food. It's not just as linear as it used to, selling calories at the best price possible. Of course, they're still looking for a good price, but they're also looking for other things as well. But really, that's also geographic related, right? I mean, as as younger generations in emerging economies you know, get more affluent, sure, maybe, you know, they're going to want to focus more on the value side of things, but the first thing they want is protein. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yep, absolutely. The protein play is going to be big. Uh, on both sides of the border. The one thing that we've noticed in North America in recent months is that consumers, when dealing with food inflation, consumers aren't necessarily spending more at the grocery store. They're spending the same. I actually was looking at some data in the U.S. Uh, the other day. Americans are paying, are spending about the same in the first quarter of 2023 than last year which means that people are more frugal. They're not willing to spend more on food. They're just 
trading down. They're probably wasting less because a lot of them are working from home. And when you work from home, you're a better inventory manager. You know what's in your cupboard. You know what's in your fridge. You don't, you're not going to shy away from, from an opportunity to eat leftovers, you know, three nights in a row. I mean, those are the things that people are doing right now to save money. Dollar store sales, food sales are up 15% year year in Canada. I suspect it's the same in the US. So you're seeing a very, different market. But at the same time, the younger generations are still looking for, you know, the extra. What else are you doing? And and I don't think that's going to go away. As as we try to get ourselves out of this food inflation sort of of tempest, I actually think that again, companies will be asked to deliver more goods in terms of uh, you know what they're doing for their community or and with the environment, especially, I mean, right now in Canada, we're dealing with some major wildfires reminding everyone that things are getting harder and drier. And you guys certainly get your fair share of wildfires and, and natural disasters. So it gets people to think about uh, certain things and they're expecting the fruit industry to uh, to deliver. Has there been any evidence in that, in that sticking to the you know, same dollar amounts on spend that the downgrading is its more than just waste. It's sort of downgrading into cheaper carbs. And I say that purely from the standpoint that I, I always believe that if food prices keep on surging, it, the effect of that is actually it's going to cause even more obesity because you got to eat, you're going to eat cheaper, less healthy things. And those tend to be, you know, high carb type of food staples. That's a good question. I'm not, I mean, the one question I get a lot is that are people, you know, are people losing weight? And I honestly don't know. I haven't seen any data on this, uh, certainly not recently. And But I'm also not a nutritionist either, so I, I don't necessarily look at what people, I'll look at what people buy from an economic perspective, but uh, in terms of the quality of the food that people are buying, all I know is that people aren't willing to pay more, which means that organics are really out of reach for a lot of people, for a growing number of people. For many years, we thought organics are going to be super popular and the market will grow. Well, we don't see it in Canada. And I just don't know what's going on in the U.S., but we just don't see it right now in Canada with the market we have right now. And so I was actually at a, at a food innovation show last week in, in Calgary, Canada. And uh, I mean, all of these companies were looking at innovating and were looking at delivering new products to the market. And I was telling all of the startups, you got to do it uh, with zero market currency. I mean, people won't necessarily pay more for for new benefits from new, for, for novelty, if you will, because they'll just go back to what they buy or they'll try to buy a cheaper brand, at least for a while. I love that point about organics. I mean, that was, uh, I mean, it's still a big thing in the state. Yeah. I don't get the sense that it's as pervasive as, as a focus as it used to be because, you know, organic is more expensive. Exactly. Right? So exactly. Your baseline is already elevated. So, you know, it's nice to want to be organic, but, you know, the, the stomach pains that are overriding, you know, the idea right, of higher quality type of food. Talk about the concentration in the food industry for a bit here. I made it a point that we're in a world where it seems like everything's an oligopoly. Yeah, it's two or three companies that really kind of drives and run the show. Is there a lot of concentration in the food industry in general, in the distribution side and the food supply side that 
could be problematic and maybe result in consumers not having anywhere near as much bargaining power as they used to in the past? Well, actually, America and Canada are are two different cases. So in America, I mean, Walmart is the number one grocer uh, in the country for a reason. It's a national player. It's one of the few national players. And uh, it does a very good job on logistics, delivering affordable foods to many communities across the nation. In Canada, Walmart is number four, well, three or four, depending on the number, depending on the data that you look at. But in Canada, we do have a high concentration of, of grocers. We just have a few players in Canada. The number, our number of grocer is called Loblaw, followed by Empire Sobeys, which is, number, those are the two national players and followed by Costco and Walmart and, and Metro. And so, and that's it. That's, that group of grocers will sell to Canadians about 85% of all food sold retail. In America, you have many regional players, which makes things way more interesting, which is why in America, prices are actually cheaper, generally speaking. If you compare prices to Canada, it's not always, not, it's not always the case, but generally speaking, food in America is, is it's cheaper just because there's more competition. And margins, by the way, margins are much higher in Canada too. They're double of what they are in America. If you look at Kroger, Albertsons, you're looking at, at margins of about 2%, 2.5%. In Canada, it's not uncommon to see grocers reach four, for example, 4.5. And so those are healthy margins. Now, grocers in Canada are as they are in the U.S., are in the real estate business, they're in the financial business, they're in, in pharmaceuticals, they sell clothing, cosmetics. I mean, that's where margins are really good because going back to my point earlier about grocers selling less food, they are selling less food to Canadians. Uh, Loblaw, our number one grocer, year-to-year sales for food are up 3.1% when food inflation is actually above 9%. So you can see that grocers are trading water selling food that are making money selling food all that much, but they are making money selling other things like cosmetic, cosmetics, precision drugs, clothing, and things like that. Are there certain um, food staples that are more vulnerable to spikes in price? I mean, I saw on your feed about you know beef prices are surging, right? Yeah. But are there certain parts of the food landscape that are more susceptible to extreme price swings? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I would say there are two categories, mainly uh, produce and uh, and meat. Because when you think about those uh, two categories, there's not a whole lot of processing that occurs. And you're always a drought away or a fire away or a flood away from seeing a spike with one major 
produce like tomatoes or cucumbers, onions, leafy greens. Uh, you're always one recall away from seeing a disastrous month when it comes to inflation. So you see major spike. It's not unheard of to see increases of 25, 30% in a month for certain products and produce. With meat, when you look at the meat trifecta, uh, which would include pork, beef, and chicken, it's it depends. Like the avian flu really threw a wrench at, at, the, at the meat counter with, with poultry and eggs. I mean, you saw what happened with eggs in the United States. I mean, at some point, eggs were up 60%. Now they're down, but it does. You can see some really, some major swings. And again, there's little or no processing. There's no transactional cost that could absorb sharks at farm gate. And that's why those cigarettes are, are typically more vulnerable to swings than other categories in general. I wouldn't, um, and again, I'm assuming you're at the forefront of this, but how would technology maybe sort of result in more resilience? I'm not necessarily talking about AI, but yeah, it's like, okay, so I haven't heard of it as a thing recently, but there was a lot of controversy debate around cloning meat, right? For example. Yes. I assume this stuff is still kind of happening on the back end and it's just not in the media as much as it was before. But yeah, what are some of the dynamics there in terms of just resilience from a scientific perspective to literally clone food when food prices are going wrong? If I may, I have a podcast called The Food Professor. And, and on my podcast a few months ago, I had the Josh Titrick, the CEO of Good Meat out of uh, California. And he's, he represents one of three companies that are about to get approval from the USDA to sell lab-grown chicken in the United States by the end of this year. So they, they have received FDA approval. It may not be in the news for non-foodie or people who don't follow food news, but it's very much in the news. So my guess is that we're probably months away from seeing the USDA make, his, USDA make history in the U.S., allowing three companies to actually sell cultured meat in the U.S., which would be chicken. And that certainly would be an interesting predicament because we don't know exactly how consumers are going to react. We don't know how it's going to be labeled either, retail. Talking to Josh on my podcast, he said that his strategy pricing-wise will be to sell cultured chicken as the same as organic chicken, same price point. And then you will gradually draw prices. But when it comes to margins, making those products are really cheaper and less, and represent less risk. Because when, again, when you go back to the end and flew, what happened? I mean, I think in America, we had to slaughter over 70 million chickens because of the avian flu. Well, when you actually feed cells in a bioreactor, you don't have to worry about it, all of these things. And it really stabilizes production costs over the long term. So again, I think the ball is in consumers' courts. We don't know exactly how consumers are going to react. And we don't know exactly how this thing is going to be labeled. But some states, like in Texas, for example, they decide to legislate and force companies to label, you know, the presence of cultured meat, even with insects. So they you can see that some states are playing defense here with these new technologies. I'm going to be fascinated to see the ad campaigns on that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, no, really. It's like, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm sure if you, and I'm sure there are all kinds of polls around this, but it's like, yeah, the biggest challenge is not, is not going to be proving the scientific biological equivalence. It's that 
not made from nature. I know, <laughs> the way but that, I, that's I'll be honest with you. I've actually, I was in Chicago last year at a show and I was asked to, to do a taste test between cultured chicken and regular chicken. I honestly could not tell the difference. I couldn't. It tasted the same texture, same everything. Like the Coke Pepsi challenge. That's exactly right. By yeah, it'll be, I think it'll be fascinating. But at the end of the day, I've, I've always said, I think consumers need to know. It's up to them to decide what they're buying. Just to basically include these products into the food chain without telling consumers would be, would be disastrous. It's, it would go back to the, this, this old GMO debate that we've been dealing with for decades now. I mean, companies like Bayer, BASF, Syngenta, they made a mistake of, of not informing the consumer. So it's important to inform the consumer as much as possible. So reset the room for the remaining minutes here. Everybody, please make sure you follow Dr. Sylvain Charlebois here on Twitter and check out his podcast as well. If you want to come up and ask a question, click that bottom left mic button. And again, this will be on my own show, Lead Lag Live on Spotify and Apple. I know you wanted to talk about how food interacts with Cold War 2.0 between China and the U.S. And again, I go back to, you know, there was a lot of scary headlines when Russia went into Ukraine and the different things that China was doing, especially on the wheat side of things. But talk to just how green relationships with China impact food in general and what are some of the redundancies or resiliencies that are being built in now? Yeah, I mean, it's I truly believe that uh, that we entered the second Cold War a few years ago. And then, of course, that Cold War is ma- mainly involves the United States and China. I think a lot of people have noticed that and would probably agree with that. Now, the first Cold War was very militarized. This time around, it's going to be more about AI and cybersecurity. Certainly in Canada, if you've been following the news in Canada, there's a lot of talk about China, Chinese interference in our own democratic process here in Canada. We've expelled a, a, a Chinese diplomat just recently, sent him back to China. It's lots of tension. And of course, there was this interference over the weekend about Taiwan. So it's, things are really sensitive. And when it comes to agriculture and food, I mean, oh, there's a big chunk of the, of our world's population that actually resides in that Asian Pacific region and their power and influences are growing. And the United States knows it. And, and of course, the number one economy in the world right now is still the United States, but, but I do believe that the American regime recognizes China as a threat. And the, we see, you see that with the Ukraine, the Ukrainian war. Russia, whether we like it or not, is an ally to China. And China could become that one country that could end the war and will be looked upon as the peacemaker instead of the United States, which has actually played the peacemaker role for a very long time. So you can feel that there's that this struggle seeking influence is there. From an ag perspective, every single day when you look at grain markets, it's it's very much about China not buying from the US, buying elsewhere. You're seeing some some countries moving away from the greenback as well. Brazil certainly being one example. So you can see that right now the two agri-food giants of the world, the US and China, are going at each other right now. And other countries like Canada are on the side. 
looking at this and it's not going to be as simple as the first Cold War. We were lucky to pick the winner the first time around, but this time around, there's, there's Europe, the Middle East, Australia, South America. I mean, Brazil certainly being a, an ag superpower, it's going to be complicated and nobody knows how long it's going to last. But really, I think over time, my guess is that food geopolitics are going to be a huge issue affecting food prices and everything else around the world. Yeah, I think it's where it gets to be kind of interesting is like a weapon or force of influence, right? So to the extent that hypothetically China does invade Taiwan in the near future and the U.S. then tries to counter it, you know, what parts of the food supply coming out of China would would maybe China use as a way to counter the U.S.? I mean, right, it's, it's a bargaining chip, a- chip aspect to food, yeah. right, in negotiation. Well, look at corn right now. I mean, China is canceling orders coming out from the U.S., for example. China's ability to become a food sovereign is there. I mean, they just build a few hog barns, hog factories, one hog barn is 27 stories high. It can actually produce 1 million hogs a year, just one barn. So you can see that really they're on this path of becoming food sovereign and not relying on anybody else. They're still relying on other countries to feed livestock. And that would include, of course, the United States. But you can see that right now, China is sending signals to the U.S. telling the Americans, well, we don't need you as much as we used to. We're going to start buying elsewhere, but we're also going to start growing our own. And that's why they're embracing genetic engineering way more than before. And that agenda will only grow. That's good. You said that it made sense. But right. I mean, China is not going to care so much about the labeling around cloned food. Right. If they got to feed their population, so they'll be way ahead of us. Exactly. They won't be as fussy as as the industrialized world where, you know, public perceptions are important. Food safety is an issue. I'm not saying that food safety is not an important issue in China, but their focus is really to become more independent from a food sovereignty perspective. Talk about investing for a bit here, I just how do you think about investing in the activists? I, I understand you have obviously your own company, but yeah, presumably you're doing more than just that with your own capital. Do you um, do you invest in in different food stocks around the globe? Are there some interesting small businesses that you're taking private placement positions in? Well, I don't. Uh, first of all, I, I'm careful with my investments because I don't want to be in conflict. I'm I am an academic first and foremost. So what? And I'm I and I do deal with media. And if I'm asked to comment on a company, I can't be an owner. I can't be a shareholder. So I'm very careful. We actually own, uh, we're investors in a mushroom farm in Ontario, in the north. And we also own, a, we're part owners of a hotel and a restaurant. So that's, and we also invest in real estate. But I, I try to stay away from food companies just because I don't want to be in conflict. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Any sort of interesting things that you think listeners should pay attention to that is maybe in the weeds, so to speak but could have a big impact. So small things having big impact on food prices uh, beyond this sort of standard geopolitical talk or other types of disruptions. 
Well, I think, I mean, climate change is a big one. I mean, you got to be careful. I actually do think that there's going to be a greater need for a controlled environment agriculture, which would mean greenhouses, vertical farms. So those are highly capital intensive projects. I get it. But there is, I think predictability is going to be a must. Food chains will have to We'll have to go after predictability. And, and so what we're seeing more, like, I mean, even in the U.S., there's some massive money being invested in controlled environment agriculture projects across the country. And in Canada, it's the same thing. And I, I don't think it's going to stop just because of how climate change is just making things so unpredictable. And at some point, that unpredictability is costing too much money to, to a growing number of, of companies. The other thing, of course, that, that is being talked about a lot, and well, we've been talking about traceability for a long time, but new technologies like AI, blockchain technologies, obviously, those are things that uh, really we weren't talking about about 15, 20 years ago that are starting to capture the attention of leaders in the food industry to trace and track products across supply chains. Uh, because at the end of the day, in going back to cultured meat, for example, consumers want to know where their food is coming from. They want some guarantees. They want to know what's in their food as well. And there, there are, there, we've seen a greater number of food fraud cases, especially in Europe. And so that's why consumers are looking for evidence. They're looking for proof. And in order to provide proof to the marketplace, you need you need a traceability system that actually works very well. So there's lots of investment in that area too. There was, I would say, probably 10, 15 years ago, but there's a bit of a renaissance around traceability and new technologies that could actually be used to really make supply chains much more transparent. Yeah, it's why I've heard that applied to actually the the vintage wine sub industry, right? So to track and make sure that these kind of old wines are actually not counterfeited in a lot of ways. It's interesting to hear that on the food side. Aside from Twitter, you mentioned your podcast, but where else can people track some of your, uh, some of your content? Well, like many people, I'm on LinkedIn as well and, uh, and Instagram too. So, uh, but I would say that my two favorite platforms are LinkedIn and Twitter. And your podcast, how often has new podcasts out? My podcast offers a weekly show. And so every Thursday, our show is released and it is The Food Professor. And you can find The Food Professor on your favorite platform, which would include Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple as well. And yeah, all of, it's available on all podcasts, on all platforms. So yeah, good place to wrap this Twitter space up. I'm glad we were able to make it work given some technical difficulties there, but appreciate those that are joining. And thank you, Dr. Trellebois, for spending the time here. My pleasure. You take care. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. 
please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.